let me turn to Dr. Paul Sullivan, one of our favorite international affairs fellows here. You'll see the reason momentarily. Why, thank you, John Duke. Think of yourself as living in the time before the automobile, before electricity, before gasoline, before nuclear power, before even a heavy use of coal, and try to predict what's going to happen next. Nearly impossible, and yet today people are predicting what will happen in 2050, 2060, and 2070 for energy. And also when you have an energy transition, just looking at the transition, moving from one fuel to another is not enough because other things are moving at the same time. Technologies are moving, transportation is moving, communication is moving, government is moving. But also you have to keep an eye on the other things that are happening that can affect your economic security, your energy security, food security, national security, human security, reliability and resilience of all of those as well. It's uh, something that is very fluid and changeable. And this is a good quote from Churchill. The further backward you look, the further forward you can see. Take a look at this chart. My guess is not many of you have seen this in the audience. World GDP per capita. All along, poverty, poverty, poverty going nowhere. We start in with the Industrial Revolution, and it takes off exponentially. World population, the same thing. We're bouncing around. Well, not exactly the same thing, a little bit different. We grow here. We get to the improvements of uh, medical services and drugs and antibiotics and, and medical sciences, and everything takes off. In 1800, there were less than a billion people. Now there is 7.7 billion. This is a period of acceleration. Now, if we put this all together with atmospheric CO2, we can see that everything was increasing in an accelerated manner. This one here, can you see my cursor? This one here around 1500, 1600, when the CO2 went down and the temperatures went down, that's called the Little Ice Age. And that started when 60 million people who used to live in the Americas became 6 million through disease and conquests and so forth. But as we can see here, something's going on. And this really explains why we're having this next transition. It's not about technology change driving. It's not about what happened before increase in population driving it or accelerating increase in population accelerating needs for energy or the push from inventions as they were happening. This next transition <coughs> is being driven by externalities, by pollutants, by CO2, by the greenhouse effect. What happened here? Oh, God. Oh, we're back. All right. I don't know how that happened. All right, we're taking a look at the history of energy. Coal and hydrocarbons, oil is a tiny blip. It's a tiny blip, but it's a quick blip. It's an explosive blip. It almost looks like the coronavirus cases in the United States in the last few weeks. Could anyone have expected that? 
Could anyone have predicted that? For years and years and centuries, millennia, we used biomass fuel, wood, cow dung, and so forth. And then we started to use coal, and then we went into hydrocarbons. Charcoal was there all along, but not a big chunk of it. Now, this is an interesting one for us to look forward. This is the growth of oil, gas, and coal over a relatively short period of time. Look at how it grew exponentially, fantastically, amazingly. Look at how oil came from almost nothing. Titusville, Pennsylvania, oil city. Pennsylvania used to be the center of the oil business. And then we have the uh, countries outside. We have Russia, we have near Baku. And then we move into the Middle East on about the same time and later with Iran, with uh, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. And right now, why this is important for the Middle East and North Africa is a lot of this growth in oil and gas help them grow as countries, as states, as people. Look back in 1971 in the UAE. Where were they? Oil and gas got them to grow and develop. Dubai would not be what it is without that. Saudi Arabia, uh, before the discovery of oil, the king's treasury was in one camel bag and it was extremely poor. And the king was talking with uh, Kim Philby's dad and a, and a sapper from New Zealand when they wanted to find oil. He said, what do I need with oil? Find me water. I need water. So look at all these changes. Within these changes, the Middle East and North Africa grew with it. And if they weren't an oil exporter, they were a people exporter in North Africa or the Palestinians. So turning this whole thing around would be turning around a lot of what is needed. Also during that time, there were lots of technology changes, new inventions that came along with the energy change, the steam engine, the electric motor, the vacuum tube, which is now semiconductors, television, nuclear energy, the microchip, and then the internet. All of this could never have happened without energy change and particularly the, the great inventions and transitions that happened because of electricity. We barely knew what electricity was in the early 18th century. We'd look up in the sky and we'd see lightning. We had no idea to capture it, no idea to store it. It took until the end of the 19th century for people to figure out how to make batteries. And now look what we're doing. We're thinking about making an entirely electrified world. I feel that's problematic. Also, within all of these new technologies that were being developed within oil and, and gas, gigantic value and supply chains that were put on the ground. How do we turn this around? I don't know what the total value is of these supply chains on the ground worldwide. I would say it's multiple trillions. How are we going to shut these down or convert them to other uses by the time period that people think this is going to happen? People are just way too optimistic about how quickly this transition is going to happen. Just look at what happened recently. Uh, the price shocks in Europe the gas, the electricity price shocks, the oil shocks, both up and down. As we move in a transition, if we move too quickly, we could shatter the world economy. We have to be very careful in doing this. But oil is not gonna disappear. 
oil will be around because there are products that use oil. Uh, those of you who like vanilla ice cream that use uh, non-natural flavorings, it comes from petroleum. Sorry, folks. You need to get the vanilla bean to get the real flavor without the petrol in it. Toothpaste, cosmetics, lotions, preservatives. When you had your cereal this morning, there was a little bit of crude oil in there. Well, refined crude oil. If you like uh, nylon, polyester, anything but pure cotton, but making pure cotton shirts requires oil. Golf balls for the golfers out there. There will still be demand for oil. Common uses for oil, thousands of them. Anyone who has little kids who use crayons? Well, we can thank the Saudis and others for the petroleum that went into that, but also the oil producers in the shale fields in our own country. Insecticides, fertilizers, pesticides, shower curtains, roofing. Tens of thousands of things use oil. Natural gas supply chains are gigantic in the world. If anyone's been to Qatar, think of the hundreds of billions of dollars that are on the ground to make sure that those LNG facilities are working properly. I visited the Chenier facility as they were building it from the ground up down at Sabine Pass. $37 billion for a start-off fee. How are we going to turn this around? Many people think natural gas is a bridge fuel for the transition. Natural gas uses or produces much less CO2, much less emissions overall uh, than coal, certainly. Uh, it could be from one-fourth to one-sixth, depending on what type of coal we're talking about, and uses, it produces, sorry, less emissions and less pollutants, certainly, than oil. So natural gas could be one of these bridge fuels, but also natural gas is used for siding, pipes, flooring, solvents, metal cleaning, dry cleaning, toothpaste, cosmetics, foods, carpets, clothing, bottles, and for the production of hydrogen and ammonia. This is part of the transition too. And methanol, a lot of things can come out of natural gas. Now, these are the CO2 emissions that go along with that quickly rising chart of fuel uses. You don't see much CO2 emissions from solar. You don't see them from nuclear because nuclear actually produces less CO2 per megawatt than just about any other source of energy. If you look at the entire supply chain and through the life cycle of the technology, nuclear is way down there. And why people are disparaging it as non-green, I don't understand. Look at coal, look at oil, look at gas. This is what's driving COP26, COP27 in Egypt, COP1, the Paris Accord, all of this stuff. This stuff is piling into the atmosphere. It's piling into the oceans that are absorbing this. It's piling into plants that are absorbing this. And there's a big drive for an energy transition because of what this is doing. Now, if we're looking in the future, the population is not going to grow like in the past. It won't be a driver for invention, for innovation, much like it was in the past. The biggest changes in population in the past were India and China. China is slowed down. India is slowing down. The population line, if you want to take a look at it, is this top one here, the, that gray one at the top. Rest of the world, when you add all of these lines together, this is what you get for population. 
So by 2050, our population is going to be close to 9.7 billion people. We are now at about seven and a half, 7.7. Who knows? Nobody really does a, a full census in a place like India. I saw one of those census happening when I was living there in the 1980s. It had nothing to do with what you saw on the ground. Maybe it's changed certainly over the years. But look at the population growth. Where do you expect most of it to happen? In Africa, China's going to flatten out. India, people expect it to flatten out. But the GDP is going to continue to grow. This is the red line. This is, could be a driver for these energy transitions. But what these energy transitions could do is knock that GDP chart down. If we move too quickly, we keep on getting these energy shocks, energy price shocks, oil shocks, uh, energy shortages, because we're moving too quickly and we're not thinking this through, we could impoverish many countries. We have to be extremely careful with this. Now, I know a lot of people in the Middle East, in the GCC, in OPEC, uh, probably think that we shouldn't be that worried about climate change. Well, those of you who are listening from Saudi Arabia, I suggest you read the King's speech from last week, which was dominated with a discussion about climate change. He's getting it. MBS is getting it. The Saudi people are starting to get it. The Emirates had it a long time ago. They started to move toward nuclear, moving toward solar, moving toward ammonia, moving toward renewables. Uh, the, their energy minister gave a talk in my class last year. He was very clear where they're headed. And it's not toward the past, toward the future. Kuwait is not moving as quickly toward that future as Saudi Arabia and the UAE are. Uh, Bahrain will follow Saudi on this. Uh, the Qataris have been moving forward with some uh, renewable energy for a very long time. But it's still all of these things. If you took a look at the charts, if anyone wants to look at them, I have them all at the end of this, this PowerPoint presentation. I have all the energy charts and Sankey diagrams for most of the countries in OPEC and the Middle East and North Africa. All of them are dominated by oil and natural gas, and they're moving very slowly. But MBS and others in the region, including the uh, leadership of UAE, want to move quickly toward a transition. Saudi Arabia is thinking about 2060. Uh, the UAE 2050. Uh, many countries in the region will follow Saudi Arabia in the UAE toward 2050, 2060. From my experience in the energy industry that goes back to 1985, I can tell you right now, 2060 and 2070 is very optimistic. There will be lots of shocks along the way, lots of disturbances. Now, this is what the energy information or the International Energy Agency is looking at for a change in fuel use. Oil goes way down, but it doesn't disappear. Coal goes way down, it almost disappears. But the strange thing about coal, people are talking about getting rid of coal, but at the same time, the Chinese, the Indonesians, and even the Vietnamese are building more coal plants. The Germans are using more coal. It's bizarre. Uh, China says that they're gonna be there by 2070 with this big transition. And yet at the same time, they're increasing coal output, but at the same time, they're building a bunch of solar panel stations and dozens of nuclear power plants. Natural gas will stay pretty high, but it will decline as well. Look at nuclear, this should be much bigger. 
that the Energy Information Agency, this is their forecast. Predicting an energy is bizarre. You can't do it. I think they're all fooling themselves in many different ways. Because if you were sitting back, going to the beginning of my talk, if you were sitting back at the time of Ben Franklin, when he's just figuring out a little bit about electricity, could you describe the energy system we have today and that the Middle East and North Africa would be so important in it? Absolutely no. Because this transition involves not just energy and technologies associated with those, but economies and peoples and societies and the post-COVID revolution that might happen. I am convinced after COVID, there will be extreme uncertainty in many parts of the world and extreme instability. The people will finally have it sink in what happened. What's that going to do to all of this? Net emissions per sector, look at how electricity goes down so quickly. That's this blue line here. How is that going to happen? Well, according to the IEA, we're going to move away from coal, natural gas, and oil. Yes, many countries use oil for electricity. We don't, since uh, Nixon made it illegal to make in a, a coal uh, an oil generating station. Buildings should go down, more efficient uh, air conditioning. Transportation, the electrification of transportation will bring CO2 down to net zero. At least that's the, that's the goal. <coughs> but I'll tell you one thing, the idea of uh, uh, entire electric uh, transportation systems makes me nervous as a person who worked for the military for over 22 years. Uh, if there are any people in the military listening in, think about, think about having a war in the Baltics with all electric military vehicles and the Russians hacking them or hacking the battery system or hacking, you have to have diversification. One thing that's missing in all of these forecasts is the required diversification based on the conditionalities that will happen over time. And it will be huge. Industry will reduce. It can move away from, uh, well, for example, one a very interesting example is this, an aluminum plant in Iceland uses all geothermal. And they have the cheapest aluminum prices in all of Europe. So you have all kinds of beer companies like uh, Heineken and so forth buying their cans from the Icelandics. Go figure. You can make steel cheaper with geothermal if you set it up right. What's going to happen over time, probably for according to the IEA, this is what they're looking at. It's going to be something more extended. It's not going to be a straight, nice line. It's going to be bouncing all over the place. It's going to be jagged. It's going to be unpredictable. And I'm pretty sure they know this. Another part of what's going to cause the changes, and John Kerry and others pointed this out, is there's going to be a lot of technology change along the way between now and 2070. Things that we don't even know about yet. We can't even guess about yet. And many of these might come out of the Middle East and North Africa. With the changes <coughs> that are happening in Saudi Arabia and the money being poured into that, this is the time to develop education in energy and in energy technology and invention in that part of the world and bring back the inventiveness of the Middle East and North Africa. There's no reason why they cannot do that. And one thing that will help drive this inventiveness and innovation is the easy money of the roller coaster of oil revenues will not be there for them. They'll be pushed to be inventive. 
They were already being inventive in many things. One thing sharpens the mind, one could say the guillotine, thinking of the French Revolution. Another thing that sharpens the mind can be heading toward poverty, having difficult economic times. This can cause it. CO2 capture is going to be part of it. The Saudis are looking into this. The UAE is looking into this. Egypt is looking into it. We're looking into this. We can capture that carbon from every single fuel source, put it into the ground, and use it. We can reuse stuff. And the whole point of this, and this is sort of my pet thing that I've attached with for some time when it comes to where the Middle East and North Africa and the rest of the world should go to solve not only the energy problem, but also the environment problem and the climate problem. You reuse things. You reduce things and you recycle things. You turn companies, houses, areas, countries into circular economies. What are we doing right now? We buy a cell phone, it breaks down, we toss it out. If that could be reused, all of that material could be reused. What are we doing now with the CO2 being pumped out of coal generating stations? We're putting it right into the atmosphere. Wrong way of looking at things. You could use that CO2, no kidding, to create building materials to create cleaning materials, to create new energy. Also, if you're looking at uh, electricity production through something like nuclear, you create a lot of heat. There's a lot of heat in a coal generating station, a nuclear generating station. Where does the heat go? That heat goes to evaporating water, to waste the water, and to send uh, less heat into the atmosphere. We waste close to 68% of all the fuel we put into our system. And a lot of that waste goes out as waste heat. Waste heat. Now, all you had to do, for example, inside that nuclear station is capture that waste heat and put it into another electricity station and create electricity from the waste heat or to dry crops or to run greenhouses or to do a million other things with chemicals and other processes with this heat that we just sent into the atmosphere as waste. Think of all the coal that has gone into coal generation that has gone up in the air as heat that is never used again. Absolutely wasteful. Also with some of the biofuels that we're using, bad idea because they use a lot of water, many of them. Uh, you can use the waste from agriculture instead of just throwing out or burning it, which can pollute in the atmosphere. You can put it into anaerobic digestion tanks. The Saudis are thinking about waste energy. The Emiratis already have one. The Emiratis and the Saudis looking into geothermal. Many countries are looking into this system too. And I'll give you a more specific example that may be better to understand if you're an energy person. This is the uh, circular carbon network framework of Saudi Arabia. This is through Aramco, through MBS, through King Salman. They're serious about this. So let's not kid ourselves. The energy transition will be happening in Saudi Arabia. It's already happening there. It's already happening in the Emirates. It's already happening in Qatar. Uh, Kuwait will pick up on this. 
the Egyptians are looking at solar and wind big time on the coastlines. They have lots of wind and solar energy potential. Reduce it. Combined cycle gas turbine is like what I was telling you about. You don't waste that heat. You use that heat to make more electricity. Uh, you have better uh, air conditioning. The biggest source or draw on energy for electricity in the Middle East is air conditioning. Air conditioning. 70% of the household use of electricity is air conditioning. We can change those standards. Then use renewable, solar. Does someone have their, uh, I'm getting an echo here. Wind and biogas, low carbon fuels, hydrogen, nuclear, and ammonia that goes along with the hydrogen. You could use carbon and polymers, methanol, oil recovery. You could capture the carbon. You could use carbon sinks. This has a lot to do with the Saudi Green Initiative. Uh, they put down, they're thinking about putting down billions of trees. This can absorb the carbon. The mangroves in the UAE can absorb carbon. You can mineralize it and turn it into useful things. I think that's all I want to say today. And uh, I'm awaiting questions from people in the audience. Thank you, Dr. Sub. Thank you, Dr. And, and I will invite uh, uh, viewers and listeners to uh, use the uh, chat component of the technology here to type in a how question to Dr. Sullivan uh, that would allow him to expound or elaborate upon some of the themes he's addressed <clears throat> or introduce ones that had he more time uh, he could have shared with us. Uh, so while we're waiting for that, uh, here are uh, questions that have been submitted while you spoke, uh, Dr. Sullivan. One is <clears throat> to place in context for better understanding and perspective uh, the position and role of OPEC, <clears throat> much maligned, uh, poorly understood, and yet, uh, despite being overlooked, ignored, and at times dismissed, still very relevant on matters pertaining to production and therefore uh, to price. Second, secondly, <clears throat> the um, domestic dynamics in a country like the United States, with what, 5% of the world's population, some say four, consuming <clears throat> nearly 20% of these uh, depletable resources. And uh, what that does on the equity front in terms of sharing, in terms of uh, moral and eth ethical uh, issues. Uh, thirdly, uh, the um, not in my backyard resistance uh, by millions of Americans <clears throat> who want to see the results of these trends and indications, but they do not want themselves to be in injured or disadvantaged as you have underscored and italicized in, in, in your remarks. And lastly, <clears throat> with the uh, reported discoveries of uh, massive amounts of oil or gas and more than oil perhaps offshore Israel, which is offshore also Lebanon, which is also offshore the Gaza Strip. Uh, these are uh, questions that have been uh, put 
um, as you spoke. Take any of them if you wish. Well, well, that's a challenging set of questions. When it comes to OPEC, when these transitions occur, and I assure you they will be occurring, but not as necessarily predicted by the IEA and other organizations, those countries with the uh, lowest costs for getting the oil and gas out of the ground will be the last country standing on this. Uh, that would be Saudi, Qatar, UAE, Kuwait, not Egypt, not the United States. The United States shale oil is much more expensive uh, than it is to get oil out of the ground in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia's way of getting oil out of the ground is also less emitting than even the United States way of getting it out of the ground. Uh, the Norwegians, it's very expensive to get oil out of the ground in the North Sea. They will not be standing. And a lot of their oil and gas likely will remain in place underground. OPEC is going to have to tread very carefully because there's a lot of emotion associated with this. Uh, and the IEF and Joe McGonagall's uh, place is going to have to work hard on how to get the consumers and the producers to work together when these changes are happening. Uh, within the United States, we have a lot of oil and gas in the ground. There is an issue of uh, equity, of justice. Uh, with regard to these transitions. What do we do with the coal workers? What do we do with the natural gas workers? What do we do with the oil workers when all this happens? The same thing might apply to those lesser developed countries that are just, just discovering oil. Let's say uh, some of the new, newer oil production by Exxon in uh, the northern part of South America or what the Russians are doing in the Arctic. This is very expensive way of getting oil out of the ground. Uh, there will be riots in the streets, folks. I will absolutely guarantee you it's going to happen somewhere once this happens. How are you going to tell a coal miner in South Africa, sorry, folks, we're not using coal anymore when the unemployment rate is already 20%. The GCC and OPEC, most of the OPEC countries are in pretty good shape for that. What happens to a Nigeria whose population may double by 2070 the way it's going? What's going to happen if the oil price for their light sweet crude drops amazingly low? What happens to them? What happens to the demand for their labor? Uh, these are very complicated questions. I can hit the wave tops on them for the NIMBY a lot of people don't want um, wind vanes or solar panels near their houses, but how many of those people would want an oil refinery across the street from them? There have always been issues of equity and justice and energy. You will not find a major generating station beside very expensive houses in Great Falls, Virginia. You will find them in the poorer sections of Virginia in the poorer sections of Maryland, in the poorer sections of Washington, DC. Energy has always carried some equity issues with them. And transitions always 
bring uncertainty and instability. Would I want to see younger people going into coal mining now? No, for the health reason, but also it's a dying industry. There are a lot of people that are now getting jobs in China in the coal industry because, well, it's a booming market in China. But what's going to happen in the future and what happens to their health? Uh, there will be transitions. What the younger people, if there are any younger people listening in right now, should be thinking about, if they're thinking about going into the energy business, look into the circular carbon economy stuff I talked about. Look into carbon sequestration and use. Look into the alternative energy systems. And if anyone is a younger person from Saudi Arabia, look into what NEOM is going to be doing on new ways of creating energy with sun and new desalinization with solar. Look into geothermal. Look to the future, not to the past, younger people, because the past will never be here again. We have to move against what's happening in the climate and the environment. We can see the pollution of the atmosphere. We can see that 7 million extra people die every year from air pollution connected often with energy. Something has to change. Actually, if I could extend this talk, I could talk about something called the Anthropocene and how we can actually see the handprint and the footprint of human beings doing the things like rainforest, doing the things like ocean currents, shifting the El Nino and El Nino, or La Nina and El Nino currents, or the, the wind circulation. And once you have uh, ocean circulation and wind circulation changing, you have no control over the environment. But let me go back even further in time. Imagine living in a world where you didn't know where the temperature would be plus five degrees C or minus five degrees C or even more within the next 10 years. That's before the Holocene. For most of the history of world, of this world, of this earth we've been living on, temperature charts were all over the map. It only calmed down in the, the last few thousand years. And that's the reason why we could have these population growths in the beginning of Egyptian civilization and all this other stuff. But right now we're changing the situation. We're affecting the temperatures. We're affecting ice. We're affecting all this other stuff. And, and believe me, folks, if you're in Saudi Arabia and you're shaking your heads, what does the Arctic have to do with me? It has a lot to do with you, particularly if you have a nice villa on the water in Jeddah. If that ice is going to melt in the Antarctic, that can affect whether your house is going to be there or you're going to have to move it back a few hundred yards. Right now in Florida, you can't build a house on the shoreline and get insurance. This stuff is happening now, folks. Uh, when it comes to the offshore oil and gas in Israel, Lebanon, and uh, Gaza, it's interesting. I've often looked at the, at the borders of those oil and gas fields. And John Duke, you'll be somewhat bemused by this. The border of those fields cut right along the Lebanese and the Israeli borders. Like almost miraculously, the oil and gas molecules decided to separate out into Lebanese and into Israeli. That's not the way it works. These fields are wide open for anyone who can get a drill down into that field that is right near Lebanon's border 
drill in and get the oil and gas out. This was one of the reasons why the uh, Iraqis allegedly invaded Kuwait because they were stealing their oil and gas, but that's something else. Uh, now, there is so much to say about the offshore oil and gas, Israel, uh, Gaza, the Palestinians have no access to this. The Lebanese are thinking about getting access to it, but I imagine that could get very complicated, particularly if some of the people who are involved in getting that access are from Hezbollah. Imagine the politics of that. And then you have the complexity of Turkey and Cyprus and Greece being involved in the northern part of the Eastern Mediterranean. One of the uh, kind of ironic jokes in Israel for many years was Moses brought us here, but if he kept on going, we would have had oil and gas fields in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. However, they have oil and gas offshore. The gas they're going to focus on and they're going to store it. They're actually going to be exporting gas to the Egyptians. Now think of the politics of Egypt with Israel exporting gas to them, not the other way around. That will be shocking. There still may be exports from Egypt to Israel in the future, but we'll just have to see how that goes. I know this is a very uh, quick answer to very complicated questions, and a lot more could be said on that. Are there any other questions? I suppose if anyone has any follow-ups, they can send an email to me and they can contact the National Council. I've been working on these things for so long. Uh, there's, there, there's one more. There's one more, uh, Paul, and superb responses to those uh, unrehearsed questions and unrehearsed answers there. Um, the late King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia uh, wanting to uh, get out of this box or this mindset of we and they, uh, we, the consumers uh, on the Western side and Asian side, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the producers heavily in the Middle East, North Africa region. And he proposed that there be an, an institution in Riyadh that Saudi Arabia would pay for the building and the maintenance and the electricity and the water supply and the land, et cetera where there would be a representation of the consuming countries uh, seven days a week, likewise the producing countries, seven days a week in the same building, oftentimes around the same table, cheek by jowl, elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder, focusing on the issues that you've addressed. And knowing that by doing so, uh, good ideas, better ideas, solutions, proposals will be the result. We killed that idea, uh, we aborted it. it. It did not come into being. And yet look what that held potentially for the Ustus, for ameliorating, for abating some of the tensions that you've uh, rightly and so clearly expounded upon. Can you comment on that? Is it, is, is it not worth revisiting? And uh, why did we not do that? Why do we not do that? Well, I thought the International Energy Forum did a lot of that. And uh, there are discussions with the producers and consumers around the tables, the International Energy Forum. And they do a pretty good job of it. 
uh, I see no reason, particularly in a time of transition, to not expand and improve upon what the IEF is doing and bring in more folks, have more discussions, have more understanding, but this is going to be crucial in reducing the tensions as the transitions take off, as the tradition, transitions stop, as they become jagged, as they become more uncertain, as they bring nerves to the frayed point. There needs to be dialogue. Uh, oftentimes, the United States answer to a problem is the problem's a nail and I have a hammer, it's called DOD, let's do it. This is not gonna be solved with DOD. DOD might be part of it. USAID might be part of it. I would certainly argue for an increase in the funding for USAID energy programs to help those poorer countries who could find themselves even in worse straits as this transition takes off. The State Department is missing so many ambassadors and undersecretaries and deputy secretaries. It's almost to the point of being dysfunctional. This is not a way to do anything. And I blame both parties for this. We have been failed by the Democrats and the Republicans in order to help resolve our problems, not just with energy, but in many parts of the world. How can we have a discussion on the Russian issue when we're missing major diplomats that are needed at that table or across the classified internet, if that's the way they're gonna be doing this? The consumers and the producers are often the same people too. The United States is a huge consumer and the major producer of oil and gas in the world. Isn't that amazing? Look what shale did. Uh, the Saudis consume a lot of their oil. They would like to not consume as much and export more. They're gonna be using that oil to produce hydrogen and ammonia. They're gonna be going into alternative energies and so forth. It'll be great, epic, world-changing technology consumption and production changes over the next few decades that none of us could predict. And maybe our grandchildren will see the end of this story or our great-grandchildren may see the end of this story, but it's not going to be easy. When I hear someone stand up and say, this is what the energy transition is gonna look like, and these are the curves that show where it's heading, I'm not sure whether I should laugh or cry because that's not the way things work. That's not the way the transitions in the past work. That's not the way they're gonna work in the future. The countries in the Middle East and North Africa and OPEC have to get with the reality of the situation. They cannot deny the situation of climate change. It's happening, folks. It will affect you. Your major consumers are changing their demand patterns because of this. Most of the oil from Saudi Arabia goes to China. China had agreed to 27 net zero. It's kind of iffy because she is doing other things at the same time. But Saudi Arabia should expect changes happening in China. China know they paid a very heavy price because of the pollution and because of the droughts and other things connected with their energy systems. And I'll be very frank, the greatest growth in CO2 emissions in the history of the world has come out of China since the year 2000. 
since they acceded to the WTO and became a massive juggernaut of trade. And by the way, we helped them get into that WTO. The US is a major source, but our growth in CO2 is actually negative in recent years. European growth in CO2 has been negative in recent years as the totality of the EU. Japanese growth in CO2 has been greatly down. Their emissions have declined for even after Fukushima because they're just so efficient with their energy. This is part of the circular economy. Reduce, reduce. We waste energy. How many times are we in a building where they have the heat way up? Let's say when I was in Georgetown teaching, the heat's way up because it's central heating. It's too warm. The students walk to the back of the classroom, they open the window and they let the cold air in. It's completely inefficient. Our cars are terribly inefficient. About three to 5% of all the fuel we put into a car actually goes to transporting us in our groceries. That's it. That's it. Most of it's yeah. wasted in drive train and stop and start driving. Sorry. Thank you, Bob. Um, there's a question uh, for, as on the spotlight uh, from the chat uh, room. How do we uh, go about uh, curbing waste, uh, wasted energy in the United States? Basic question. Well, we are amazingly wasteful, not just in energy, but also food and water. Reducing energy wastes, we can start with transportation. Our cars are absurd energy wasters. If you drive for a long distance, let's say going on vacation, the next time we can do such thing, open up the hood, or for those listening from England, the bonnet, and feel the heat coming out of that engine. Some of the Marines I have known have cooked their MREs and other things on a Humvee engine after driving across the desert because it's hot enough to do that. That's an absolute waste. We have to change the way we set up engines. That engine in the Humvee, in your car, in my car, in Mercedes, and so that's all the same engine that was developed many, many years ago with some tweaks and and changes every once in a while. The waste is about the same. The waste in an electricity energy is the waste at the electricity generating plant. You can go right into the engine of an electricity or electrical car like a Tesla. You won't feel any heat. Well, there'd be some from friction and so forth, but, but nothing like what you have in an internal combustion engine. It's called an internal combustion engine because you're combusting things. What's happening inside of your engine are little explosions all the time you're driving. That causes a lot of heat. Another waste in transportation. Okay, you're driving in Washington, D.C. in normal traffic. Accelerate, stop. Accelerate, stop. Accelerate, stop. Doesn't it drive you crazy? Actually, your calves get hurting. Your feet start to get tired. Anyone been on I-95 trying to go down to Southern Virginia? And you're stop and start and stop and start. You're going back to your alma mater, John Duke. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. We could set up those braking systems to create electricity in the braking system. It already exists. We're not doing it. The American automobile companies 
the Japanese automobile companies, the South Korean automobile companies could change all this stuff nearly overnight. They're not doing it because they're making enough money by not doing it. But all we right. could save massive energy. Also, electricity, I could get into that. But that's a, another Sullivan rant about how we could become so much more efficient in producing uh, electricity out of generating plants. Nuclear is the way to go. Cogeneration, using that waste heat to do other things. Great. That's uh, uh, two questions here, uh, not related, uh, except indirectly. Uh, can we talk about the uh, geopolitics uh, a bit more of the energy situation? Uh, what, 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 for example, <clears throat> must uh, less stable and less affluent at the moment oil producers, uh, Iraq, Libya, Venezuela, do to make the energy transition successfully? And what are the chances that they could become truly failed states if they continue to rely on oil and gas? The second question is in a recent article in Arab News, the most widely read English language newspaper in the Arab region, the Middle East, and the Islamic world. You take a position that there's no such thing as clean energy, but cleaner energy. What do you mean? Could you be a bit more precise in terms of what cleaner energy would look like and the feasibility of it in the short term or the immediately foreseeable future? Well, I, I would uh, recommend that the entire audience read the article and share it with as many people as you know. Because within their article, I point out that all these folks saying solar is clean energy is wrong. It's not a clean energy. Because if you follow the supply chain for solar power back to the cobalt to create the batteries and the other uh, minerals that are mined to make the solar panels and more, you get back to places with slave labor, for example, in Democratic Republic of Congo, or abusive labor in Bolivia and other countries that produce lithium. Uh, it, when a lot of people think of lithium, they, many of them may think of the lithium mines of California or in Australia, where people are treated pretty well. They have unions and all this. But most of the cobalt that goes into your cell phone, let's say here's my cell phone. The reason why this cell phone has a rechargeable battery is because it has cobalt as part of that battery. This is a major part of the rechargeability of it. And a lot of that cobalt, I'm sorry to tell you this, folks, is dug out of the ground by child labor and slave labor. And well over 650,000 people have died in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it has a lot to do with blood minerals. A lot of the so-called clean energies base their minerals find their minerals in places of conflict. Most of the minerals in the world are found in developing countries that are unstable. Think of all the people trying to go after the minerals in Afghanistan. Oh, there's 1.33 trillion so forth of minerals in Afghanistan. The chances anyone is going to get a good chunk of that out close to zero because it's so unstable. How do you think the Taliban are going to treat the people once they figure out a way to get this stuff out and sell it to the Chinese? By the way, the Chinese are our laundromat for our ethics and morality on this. A lot of that cobalt and lithium and other products go to China. China is the biggest battery manufacturer in the world. 
And then they send them to us with a stamp, let's say BT wire batteries, whatever battery. And we buy it in the store and we think, oh, that's nice, that looks clean. Because we don't think about the supply chain. We don't think about the people abused along the supply chain. Anyone who calls clean energy, clean energy, better do a complete run up of what the supply chain of that clean energy is. Where do you get the materials to make this stuff? How much of the environment is damaged to dig this stuff out? Now, that's just wow, that's solar, wind energy does the same thing. The Tesla batteries, well, give me a break, maybe not necessarily Tesla, but batteries in general are problematic. Some companies, including Tesla, HP, and Apple, have made a deal that they will not buy conflict minerals for their batteries and material. That's a good start. It's a lot like the Kimberly process for diamonds. Let's hope that moves forward as the transition moves forward, because if this does not happen as the transition moves forward, there will be an increase in the abuse of people in order to get these massive amounts of minerals out of the ground that will be needed for the energy transition. Why am I saying cleaner? Because solar, geothermal, nuclear, wind, ocean energy don't produce even near the emissions of natural gas, coal, and oil. That's cleaner. And also when it comes to the abuse of people in the past, let's not dismiss the fact that that happened in the oil, coal, and gas industries and is still happening in the coal industries of India and China. There has to be a sense of energy justice for the future. Excuse me if I stand on top of my soapbox. Without that energy justice for the people associated with this transition, and the people associated with those staying back, there will be revolutions. There will be civil wars. There will be increased crime. But even more important, people will have their souls injured by the mistreatment of others. Without some sense of justice in this transition, it frankly will not happen in many places in the world. Look what recently happened to Chile, a major copper exporting country. The people got fed up with the inequality they got fed up with not sharing in the proceeds. They rioted throughout the country. They burned down some of my favorite buildings in Santiago. I went to Chile many times to talk with them about energy and the copper industry and so forth. A beautiful country, but a very unequal country. Iran could be walking into this too because Iran is an incredibly unequal country and an increasingly unequal country. Even kings and princes have to think about what's happening on the street. Ask the Mubarak family about that. And the Saudis have been responsive to what's been happening on the street. And the Emiratis are in a different story because the typical Emirati is doing very well and has a lot of funds from the government. But 85% of the Emirates is not Emiratis. What's going to happen in the future with this if they realize back in their home countries, things are getting, what's going to happen to the future of expatriate labor if oil markets start to 
decline? Where do they work? What happens to the population growth in India, Pakistan, in the Philippines, in Indonesia, when these energy systems are changing? That's a huge question. Just walk around the Emirates, drive around the Emirates, meet some of the people who actually do some of the household work and do the work on the oil field, so forth. The, the working people, the people who built the Qatari LNG facility. I was there while it was being built. There weren't many Qataris doing that. Lots of Pakistanis and Indonesians and Filipinos. What happens to them when oil and gas is not what it was? These folks have to be educated. They have to be trained. They have to have skills to survive in the next world that's coming. And if they don't have it, the mass of unemployment will be shocking. Everyone looking at these energy transitions is looking at these nice blue and yellow and gray curves and the change in the energy use and all this. Behind all of those charts are hundreds of millions of people who could be either desperate for jobs or have new jobs that give them hope and a sense of honor. That's a big thing that has to be considered. A lot of what's happening in our own country is because of these technological shifts and because many companies uh, went and uh, mechanized and, and had AI take over factories. Why would you need a high school graduate to work in one of those factories? You don't. So what do they do? What do they do? What do they do now in COVID? COVID is going to be a world-changing event the fact that it's happening at the same time, pretty much, as the startup of a significant energy transition could lead to either a wonderful world if we do this right, and we have great leadership, that's going to be key. If we have poor leadership, forget about it, folks. It's going to be a mess. We have to train for better leaders. We have to train for better workers. We have to train for better scientists. There are scientists who can explain their science to the public. There's a big gap there. Look at what's happening with COVID. Look at what's happening with uh, climate change. Look at what's happening with the whole idea of energy. Well, I'll try to wrap up now. This uh, a tour de force uh, with no boundaries, as implicit and, and explicit in the questions put to you and the, the issues, the challenges, the opportunities potential pitfalls, the certain pitfalls that lie, lie ahead. Um, what you've done here, and what we like to call a cerebral massage, is to advance very much the National Council's mission, which is one word, education. You've alluded to it, you've italicized it, you've capitalized it, you've neonized it in the viewers' minds and heads and hearts. Uh, we also hopefully have gone beyond what so many people for half a century almost have viewed among certain Arab countries as simply gas stations, uh, not as countries, not as people, or simply mountains of money uh, to be captured, to be deposited, to be brought here, to be kept here, uh, instead of seeing and these uh, countries is what they are, what we are, what other countries are. Namely, they're not just uh, objects to be manipulated, influenced, exploited, cajoled, coerced, connived, contrived. 
but to be seen as usness uh, with their legitimate needs. We have legitimate needs, they have legitimate needs, their legitimate concerns, our legitimate concerns, our legitimate interests, their legitimate interests, our respective uh, legitimate foreign policy, foreign relations goals. Uh, this aspect of dialogue that you mentioned is crucial. And um, that was an excellent answer to where this can be done as effectively or more effectively than any other place. Uh, I was thinking Riyadh, which has made the offer to pay for it. Uh, Vienna is another one where the infrastructure, the buildings, and uh, that dynamic is already in place. But you pointed out the International Energy uh, found, uh, organization, agency, uh, that would seem to be ideal. And uh, we've been grappling with this now for nearly half a century. Those um, uh, permanent ambassadors to the United Nations in the 1970s, and when the last oil embargo in 1973 occurred, and the United States was one of the embargoed countries as uh, was the Netherlands, could see right then, <coughs> Uh, the need, subjective as much as objective, not to look at the region in terms of interdependency, uh, but uh, independency. And we even had a unit in the Department of State uh, that was tasked with that as a strategic objective. <clears throat> but the uh, immediate before last GCC Secretary General gave a brilliant presentation on the need for interdependency. And he pointed out this with respect to the European Union, <clears throat> where there's been no armed conflict, international war as such, uh, for the last 70 years, because they have accepted the principle of interdependency. We Americans are not there yet. And the question is, when and will we ever be there, uh, given the reality of the domestic uh, politics in the United States? where Islamophobia uh, is alive and well, so to speak, as is Arabophobia, which we'll see in increasing, not decreasing amounts between now and the elections uh, this uh, coming uh, fall. So you've helped us immensely uh, poke through some of these uh, issues and uh, hopefully underscore the need for justice, for dialogue, for exchanges, for studies, for research and for development on how to address these challenges. Some of them to be surmounted, others to be ameliorated, still others to be abated, and yet others simply to be managed. But avoidant, no, avoidance is not an option. Thank you, Paul, for everything you've done to enlighten all of us in this session. And thank our viewers and listeners for tuning in for those who could not capture all of it, uh, you can, uh, within a matter of just a few days, on the podcast and technology medium. Thank you, and good day.